Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Some of the darkest days in world history happened during Nazi Germany under Hitler's reign. And not a lot of pastors stood up to Hitler. Um, There was one pastor, I guess more of a priest, his name was Bishop of Munster von Galen. Uh, He was a Roman Catholic priest, and he publicly protested thousands um, you know thousands of his copies of his of his sermons were printed and circulated throughout Europe. Um, he was not punished by Hitler surprisingly because Hitler did not want to go against the Roman Catholic Church at that time he didn 't want to openly go against the Roman Catholic Church. Well what moved the Bishop of Munster to protest what Hitler was doing in Germany? And the Protestant church, sadly, this is, a, this is a sad thing, the Protestant church turned a blind eye to this. The Roman Catholic church addressed it under uh, Bishop Mun- of Munster, but the, the Protestant church didn't do much. Here's what was happening, okay? Hitler was ordering the forced sterilization and euthanasia of handicapped and mentally challenged people in Germany. Euthanasia and sterilization. So it started in 1934, and up to 400,000 handicapped and mentally incapable people were sterilized under law. Um, Most targeted were patients in mental institutions. Um, It was just basically the beginning. This was the beginning before the slaughter of the Jews. This is what kind of started down that road. And so it basically led to the systematic killing of handicapped people. Um, Hitler called these mercy killings because he wanted to purge Germany of anybody that was handicapped or mentally challenged because he wanted a pure Aryan race without any types of disabilities. Um, It was never put into law in Germany. It was done secretly across Europe. The code name for this was called Operation T4, and basically it targeted mentally challenged and handicapped people and um, and did all this stuff. A lot of these people were bused to old castles, former prisons. They were killed by lethal injection and later on in the gas chamber. After World War II, when the dust settled and things started becoming investigated, Probably over 70,000 deaths by gassing um, between 1940 and 1941. The only real Protestant that spoke out against this was Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Um, He urged churches throughout Germany to put pressure on on Hitler to to put an end to this. Um, And basically, it it was closed down because of the pressure. But here's the point. From 1939 to 1945, 250,000 mentally and physically handicapped persons were murdered, euthanized, killed under Operation T4. Now, this sickens me to death 
because if my son were alive in Nazi Germany during that time, he would have been targeted. Not only is he physically handicapped in some areas, but he's also mentally challenged. And so when we think about the handicapped or the disabled, uh, there's a lot of groups that advocate for their causes all across the country. Being a parent of a child with special needs, being a parent of a child that's handicapped, I can say that a lot of times there's, there's not a lot of advocacy for people with disabilities. Um, and so you may say, well, why did you bring up the issue of mercy killing of people with disabilities during World War II? What, what, what's the big deal about having a disability? What we're going to see in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is that David shows kindness to Jonathan's son who had a disability. This is one of the rare times you look in the Bible and find out that a person had a disability, a person was physically handicapped, and you see how David treated this person, uh, which gives us a picture into how God thinks about those that are both mentally challenged, special needs, whatever words you want to use. Um, the, the, the language has changed over the years. Um, back in the old days, they probably would have said this was a story about the crippled boy. Um, that's probably not politically correct now, but persons with handicaps, persons with disabilities, both physically and mentally. But this young man here, his name's Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth, in this passage of Scripture, does have a physical disability. So let's, let's see how David the king showers grace on somebody who would have never expected it. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. It's a short chapter, but it's a wonderful chapter. And so we're going to look at this just from the story itself, and then we're going to make some spiritual applications as to what it means for us, okay? So I'm just going to read the entire chapter, and then we'll go back and we'll look at it in more detail. So 2 Samuel chapter 9. <clears throat> and David said, is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? And he said, I'm your servant. And the king said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to him? And Ziba said to the king, There's still a son of Jonathan. He is crippled in his feet. The king said to him, Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, He's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is this, your servant, that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Then the king called Ziba, Saul's servant, and said to him, All that belonged to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him 
and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons, and Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Okay. Now, to understand this narrative here in 2 Samuel chapter 9, we need to go back and see the history or the background of what's happening here. Okay? Back in 1 Samuel chapter 20, back when Saul was still alive, what do you guys remember about Saul? He was always trying to kill David. Okay? And this was when Jonathan warns him. And basically, this is the, the, the conversation we have between David and Jonathan when Jonathan is warning David that his dad, Saul, is trying to kill him. So in 1 Samuel 20, 14 and 15, this is what Jonathan asks of David. He says, If I'm still alive, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Now, I know it's been many weeks, probably way back when we first started this, but do you guys remember the covenant friendship that David and Jonathan had? They were, they were brothers in arms. They were like blood brothers, blood brothers. And so basically, because David is a godly king and a man of his word, now after Saul is dead, after Jonathan's dead, there's still a remaining heir in Saul's house, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth. And so what David does is he's going to show steadfast love to Mephibosheth because of the promise that he made to Jonathan. Now, here's the word that is the most important word in this passage of Scripture. It's the word kindness or the word steadfast love. Back in 1 Samuel 20, it was steadfast love. Here it's translated kindness. It shows up three times. Now, it's the word that we've known for many years now. Chesed. So Jonathan says, David, show hesed to my family. And David says, I will show hesed. I'll show kindness. I'll show loving kindness. And that word, kindness, or hesed, or steadfast love, in 2 Samuel chapter 9, it shows up three times. And so it's a covenant love. It's a powerful love. It's the love that God shows his people. David is showing this type of love to Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. And this is a, a loyal covenant love that David is fulfilling on behalf of his covenant friendship with Jonathan. Now, what does this passage teach us about Mephibosheth? Now, there's two prominent things about him. It doesn't take hard to read between the lines to find out what's going on here, but First of all, he's physically handicapped. It begins with that and it ends with that. If you look at verse 3, it says he's crippled in his feet. And then the narrative ends in verse 13, he was lame in both of his feet. Now you may ask, well, how did, how did Mephibosheth get disabled? What happened? Was he born this way? Did something happen? 
Well, we don't have to guess. If you go back to 2 Samuel chapter 4, verse 4, we find out what happens. Jonathan, the son of Saul, had a son who was crippled in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel, and his nurse took him up and fled, and as she fled in her haste, he fell and became lame, and his name was Mephibosheth. So here's what's happening. Jonathan and Saul are dying on the battlefield. And word comes back to the nurse, Jonathan's nurse, who's taking care, like the nanny, if you will, of Mephibosheth. He's five years old. She picks him up and carries him, begins to run. She trips. He falls inadvertently. And it must have been so bad that the fall caused both of his feet to be broken. Now, back then... You couldn't take the ambulance to the ER and have your, have your legs reset. So probably what ended up happening was this kid just ended up with broken legs at five that just never didn't heal right. Now, if both legs were crippled or disabled, I'm, I'm probably sure he probably walked with a crutch or some, I mean, some type of, of way to get around. So that happened when he was five. Okay, fast forward to chapter nine here. He's probably now 20, maybe late teens, early 20. He's enough to have his own son. And so this, the first thing that we find out about him is that he is physically disabled because of a tragic accident that happened to him as a five-year-old boy, and now he is an adult with two disabled or, or, or crippled feet. Okay, the second thing, and this is where the, the Hebrew the name of Hebrew is very, very important. Where is he living? He's living in fear as an enemy of David in a place called Lodabar. Lodabar. Now, why is he hiding out in Lodabar? Why is, he, why is he hiding out? Whose family is he from? He's from Saul's family. So in his mind, he's probably thinking... Everybody from Saul's line is going to get killed by David because Saul was the enemy of David, so I better hide out. Because if I'm found out, David will kill me because I'm an heir, I'm a threat, I'm Jonathan's son, Saul was my grandfather. So where's he living? If you notice, it says there in um, verse 4, the king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, at Lodabar. What does Lodabar mean? Okay, it's two Hebrew words. Lo means no. Davar means place. Okay? Literally, he's living in no place. He's in no man's land. He's living in the middle of nowhere, as a handicapped exile, probably in fear that if he's discovered that he's from Saul's family, David would surely kill him. So let's think about the context. If you're Mephibosheth, what, are, what is your existence? I'm living in fear. I'm living out in the middle of nowhere so I'm not found out. And I'm handicapped. And I'm probably lonely. That's Mephibosheth. And David has no idea who he is because David has to go ask, is there anybody left of, of Saul and Jonathan's family that I can show kindness to? 
And so in a beautiful act of kindness, remember that's the key word that shows up on this passage three times, in a beautiful act of kindness, David the king, instead of killing Mephibosheth, showers him with grace upon grace. So what does David do? Once David finds out from Ziba, the servant, that Jonathan's got a son, David's like, bring that kid, bring that man here. Bring him here. And so Mephibosheth has an audience before the king. Now, if you're Mephibosheth, what are you thinking? Has he brought me in to execute me? Has he brought me in to imprison me? Has he brought, why am I here? Okay, what does David do? David does three things for Mephibosheth that show amazing kindness. What's the first? The first thing that David does is he grants him protection. He grants him protection. Look at verse 7. David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. Do not fear. Basically what he's saying to Mephibosheth is this. You don't have to live as an exile in the middle of nowhere anymore. You don't have to live on the run. You don't have to live in, in, fi- in hiding. I'm going to show you kindness. I'm going to bring you protection. You don't have to live in Lodabar anymore. So protection. Don't fear. I'm not going to kill you. You don't have to live in the middle of nowhere anymore. Secondly, David grants him provision. What does he say there in verse 7? Not only does he say, do not fear, I'll show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore to you all the lands of your father. That's huge. He restores to him all the lands of Saul. Now what is that? Well, if you go back and you read your Old Testament, this means that all the family estate about three miles north of Jerusalem in Gibeah would be returned to Mephibosheth. In essence, he would get the inheritance of land he thought he would never have. Where's he living? Remember, where's he living? Lodabar, which means what? No place. He's living out in the middle of no he's living out in the middle of nowhere in fear of death. And David says, number one, don't fear, I'm not going to kill you. Number two, I'm going to restore to you all of your inheritance. Everything that was your father's, the estate, the land, everything that would belong to your dad and to your, grand, and to your grandfather Saul, I'm giving to you. And then number three, which I think is the most important, he grants him a new position. Protection, provision, and position. Look at the end of verse 7. You shall eat at my table always. Who got to eat at the king's table? The king's family. No Joe Blow Israelite could come in and eat at the table of the king. David is fulfilling this promise that he made to Jonathan and showing tremendous kindness. So eating at the table meant fellowship with the king. It meant access friendship it meant that he would no longer be in exile living in no place frightening that he would be found out killed 
he can now have the position and privilege of eating at David's table forever. So just think about what Mephibosheth hears. He comes in thinking he's going to get killed. And what does he hear? You're no longer in exile. You're going to get all your family estate back. And I'm going to treat you like a son, and you're always going to get to eat at my table. That's, that's some great words to hear. Now, how does Mephibosheth respond to this amazing display of David the king's grace and kindness? What does he say in verse 8? He paid homage and said, this is interesting, what does he say? What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? The word servant there is, is actually not as strong as it could be. It's actually the word slave. What is your slave that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Dogs were not domesticated animals in Israel. In ancient Israel, dogs were mongrels. They were dirty. They were scavengers. They were dirty animals that you really didn't want to bring into your home. They would go through the trash and they would go through stuff. And you, you didn't have Rover come in and, you know, you didn't have a pet. Not back then. So how does he see himself when David showers him with grace? I'm a dead dog. I'm a slave. He sees himself as an outcast who was living in exile and did not in any way deserve this act of kindness. He's humbled and he understands he's not worthy of any of this grace. So what's his response? I am overwhelmed with gratitude that you would shower me with this grace. Why? Who am I that you would do this to me? So put yourself in Mephibosheth's shoes. His whole life has changed in just an instant. And why did his life change? Did he deserve it? Not really, because he was from the wrong family. What did he really deserve, technically? He could have been... A, I mean, he could have technically been killed because he was part of Saul's family, but David says, I made that promise to Jonathan. I want to show kindness. I want to show grace. I want to be a godly king, so I'm going to give you protection. I'm going to give you provision, and I'm going to give you a new position. And, and, and basically, I think Mephibosheth is just overwhelmed with gratitude. So, that's the story at face value. And what happens? He gets to eat at the master's table, at the king's table, all the days of his life. Mephibosheth, if you look at how it ends, happy ending, verse 13, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both his feet. Where was he living before? No place. Where is he living now? Jerusalem. He's eating at the king's table. Okay, now, piggybacking off last week. I know last week was a week ago, and I don't expect you to remember everything we talked about last week. But we talked about those three big categories that came out of the Protestant Reformation, especially the Heidelberg Catechism, the three big categories of the Christian life, guilt, grace, gratitude. We see those same elements in this story in a way that we can, we can make spiritual application. So, obviously, this is a narrative that happened thousands of years ago. It tells us of how David treated a specific heir of Jonathan, what does this have to do with us? 
What's the spiritual application for us? Well, there's a lot. Here's the point for us. As helpless enemies, us, King Jesus showers grace upon us richly. Okay. Let's make this very personal. We are Mephibosheth in this story. And David is, or Jesus is, is the king. Now you say, well, what do I mean I'm, I'm Mephibosheth? I'm not a son of Jonathan with crippled feet. How, how am I Mephibosheth? Well, let's talk about spiritually, okay? Let's think about Mephibosheth. Just what do we know about him? He was handicapped, he was in exile, he was an enemy, and he was living in nowhere. And he deserved death. Okay. So, what was our spiritual condition before God saved us? Okay, so under the big category of guilt, guilt, grace, gratitude, okay, what was our condition before we were saved? Okay, we saw three things about, uh, we see three things about our lostness before Christ saved us that parallel Mephibosheth. Okay, what did he say about himself? Why would, you treat a dead, why would you treat a dead dog like such as me with such grace? Okay, just like he claimed to be a dead dog, we too were once spiritually dead in our sins. You could say it this way. Before Christ saved you, you were a spiritually dead dog. Okay, I know that's not the best way to put it, but we were spiritually dead in our sins. Now, Pastor Sean, where do you get this idea that we were spiritually dead? Well, it doesn't come from me, it comes from Paul. So listen to what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3. I want you to pay careful attention to the language Paul uses. And you were dead. Okay, what tense is the word were? Not a trick question. Past tense. Okay, so before you were saved, you were dead. And what were you dead in? You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. What else characterized you? You were following the course of this world. Okay, what else? You're following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now is at work in the sons of disobedience. That's Satan. What else was our condition? Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And lastly, what was our condition? We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul gives five descriptions of our condition before salvation. We were spiritually dead. We followed the world. We followed Satan. We were enslaved to our flesh. And we were born under God's wrath. In other words, when Mephibosheth says, why would you so show grace to such as a dead dog like me? We were dead in our sins. Okay. What else do we know about Mephibosheth? Twice in that passage of Scripture, it says he was physically handicapped. Just like he was physically handicapped, we too were once spiritually handicapped from coming to Christ. This is called the doctrine of total inability. Now let me explain to you the doctrine of total inability and how it's different than total depravity. They both work together. Okay. Total depravity says we are sinful to the core of our being 
in our mind, our will, our emotions. We are born with a sin nature. We're born dead. We're born corrupt. Not as bad as we could be. That's not total depravity. It's not utter depravity like we're as bad as we could be. It just means that every faculty of our being is corrupted with sin to the core. Okay, That's total depravity. Total inability says because of that, we are unable to come to faith in Christ on our own. Something has to happen to us to cause us to come to faith in Christ. We are unable. So what does Jesus say in John 6.44? No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up on the last day. Okay, no one can come to me. Can come. Now, that word can It's the Greek word dunamis, which is the Greek word for power. You may have heard it like dunamis, and it's been transliterated in modern parlance as dynamite. What it literally means is no one has the power to come to me unless something happens. What's that something that has to happen? The Father has to draw you. Without the Father's drawing, without the Father's bringing you to salvation, you and I cannot come. Now, does cannot, that speaks of inability. That's something you cannot do. Jesus does not say, no one may come. So let me give you an example. Dawn's a kindergarten teacher at Ayers, and a little kid comes up to her and says, can I use the restroom? She says, I don't know, can you? What's she asking? Well, they have the ability to go to the bathroom. That's not what they mean. What should they say? May I use the restroom? Yes, you may. I'm granting you permission. There's a difference between granting someone permission and then having the ability to do something. Jesus is not saying, no one has permission to come to me. What he's saying is no one has the ability to come to him unless the Father does draws him. Now, look at John 6.65. It's a parallel passage. It's in that same This is the whole conversation right after Jesus talks about being the bread of life. They're grumbling because they don't really understand what he's saying. And this is the exact same wording, but just a little bit differently. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted him by the Father. Okay, so do you see those two scriptures side by side on your sheet of paper? Okay, do you see the first phrase almost exactly the same? No one can come to me. Do you see that in both both verses? No one can come to me unless, unless. Okay, what's the difference? In verse 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him. In verse 65, unless it's granted by the Father. Synonyms for the same thing. What has to happen in order for you to be able to come to Jesus? The Father has to grant the grace for you to come. The Father has to draw you to himself sovereignly and effectually. And so... I guess I'm getting ahead of myself here. I, I already told you this, but the Greek word used here means inherent ability. No person has the inherent ability to come or have faith in Jesus. Why? We're spiritually dead without Christ. We are spiritually unable to come to faith in Christ unless God does a work. It's in our nature. Now, I'm going to show you a very weird verse. 
Where'd this verse come from, Pastor Sean? Jeremiah 13, 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard change his spots? Then also you, can you do good who are accustomed to doing evil? Okay, these are, these are three rhetorical questions. What's the first rhetorical question? Can an Ethiopian change his skin? What's the, what's the answer to the theoretical question, the hypothetical question? No. An Ethiopian who has dark skin cannot wake up one day and say, I want lighter skin. Why can't an Ethiopian change his skin? Because he's what? Born that way. It's in his nature. It's in his pigmentation. You can't fundamentally change the way you're born if, with your skin color. It's how God determined for you to be born. Can't change it. Can the leopard, second question, can the leopard change his spots? Can a leopard wake up one day and say, I want to be a tiger, I want stripes? I mean, he can say that, but can it happen? Why can't a leopard change its spots? Because a leopard is born that way. So if you're born with your skin color, Ethiopian, and you're born with spots, leopard, that's the physical realm. Okay, what's the third question Jeremiah asks? Then can you, human, do good who are accustomed to evil? And what's the, what's, the, what's, the, what's the answer to the hypothetical question? No, you can't do good, only evil. So why? Why can you only do evil? <coughs> what was the issue with the Ethiopian? What was the issue with the leopard? They were born that way. <coughs> Excuse me. So from the natural world, we see that there are some things that you are born with that you can't rise above. The Ethiopian can't rise above his skin color or change it. The leopard can't rise above the way God made him with spots. In the same way, you can't rise above sin because that's the way you're born. You are born corrupt with only accustomed to doing evil. Okay, Let's look at another analogy from nature. Okay, so this is an analogy from skin pigmentation, from leopards. All right, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, another analogy from nature, Matthew 7, 17 through 18. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Okay, so let's ask the question. I'm not a horticulturalist, but I know a little bit about trees. Can a diseased tree produce good fruit? Why? It's not a trick question. Because it's diseased. Okay, in the root system of the tree, there's something fundamentally wrong with the nature of the tree that causes the tree to be rotten, to only produce rotten fruit. So the tree cannot produce anything out of itself because the nature of the tree is corrupt. Now, you can go buy a house, like, you know, you go in a backyard and there's a diseased tree that doesn't have any fruit and you can go buy plastic apples and staple them to the tree and make it look like it's producing fruit, but that's just fake fruit. Can a good tree produce bad fruit? Possibly, but Jesus here is saying, basically what he's saying is, the fundamental nature of the tree determines what its response will be. Okay, let's think about that spiritually. If you're a spiritually diseased tree, what are you going to produce? 
bad fruit? Can you change your nature as the tree to become a good tree? No, you can't do that change. Something outside of you needs to come in and overcome that disease and transform you from the inside out. Spiritually, we call this regeneration. Once the Holy Spirit effectually calls sinners to faith and grants them new life, the renewed will that was once in bondage produces good fruit. Okay, we're talking about inability or spiritual inability. So we're, we're under this big category of guilt. Okay, Mephibosheth was an outsider. He was an outcast. He was handicapped. Spiritually, we were outcast. We were spiritually unable. We were spiritual enemies. Um, let's look at another passage of Scripture that teaches this inability of what we cannot do. Okay, so when you look at the Scripture that says cannot, that is an inability. No one can come to the Father. I mean, no one can come to me unless he's drawn by the Father. No one can come to me unless the Father grants him. Okay, Romans 8, 5 through 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Okay, let me just, let me just give you a... Let me answer an objection here because I hear this on some... I'm kind of going into Sean Cole podcast mode because I do a podcast separate from the church. There are people out there that argue that... This is not talking about an unregenerate, unsaved person. They're basically saying, you can choose to set your mind on the flesh, or you can choose to set your mind on the Spirit. It's up to you whether you choose to do that. I totally don't buy that. I think Paul is describing an unregenerate, unsaved person here. The mind of the flesh. So, Paul gives four descriptions of an unregenerate pers person, an unsaved person. When you live according to the flesh, according to this passage of Scripture, that means you're not saved. Okay, so what, what describes an unsaved person? First, the depraved mind is set on death. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. And Paul uses a present tense verb there to show that the unregenerate person is spiritually dead right now. Not only are they going to experience death and hell if they don't repent, but right now an unsaved person, they're spiritually dead. Their mind is only set on being, on being spiritually <coughs> dead. <coughs> Man, it must be the wind got something in my... Something up, up there. So the depraved mind is set on death, spiritually dead. But notice what else it says. <coughs> Those who are on the flesh are hostile to God. What does hostile mean? You, you hate God. Do you think most non-Christians wake up every day and think to themselves, today I really hate God. Now, 
blatant atheists that maybe like, you know, are, are flaming atheists would probably say that. But most non-Christians don't wake up and say, you know what, my whole nature is that of hating God, of being hostile to God. They may not consciously wake up and think that, but what does the Bible say they are? Their minds are hostile to God. They don't want to hear what God has to say. They don't want to submit to God. They don't want anything to do with God. They're an enemy of God. We were a rebellious enemy. We were hostile to God. And then, third thing he says there is, those in the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Now, obviously, this is talking about the Ten Commandments or anything that God commands. And the, wor- the verb there, he says, those in the flesh cannot. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That verb for cannot is the same one Jesus used that we just looked earlier in John 6.44, which means sinners do not have the inherent power or capacity to obey God. So let's ask the question, what is submission to God's law? What does it mean that you cannot submit to God's law? Does this merely mean that a lost person cannot fulfill the obligations of the Ten Commandments? Well, yes and more. God's law refers to any command placed upon a person in which he or she is obligated to perform. Anytime God tells you to do something, the scripture here says you can't do it. So let's ask a question. Is repenting and believing part of God's law? Are these duties placed upon all people everywhere? In other words, does Jesus command you to repent and believe? Yes. Mark 1.15, Jesus came saying the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. When Paul's up in Mars Hill preaching to the Athenians, God commands all people everywhere to repent. It's something we're required to do, repent and believe. But there's a problem. We can't repent and believe. Due to the spiritual deadness and radical corruption as those enslaved to the flesh, unsaved people cannot submit to God's requirement to repent and believe in Jesus, nor do anything spiritually positive unless God overcomes this pervasive condition, unless the Father draws, unless the Father grants. And then the fourth thing Paul says in that Romans passage is that the unregenerate sinner cannot please God. Okay, what pleases God? Obedience to His law pleases God. Keeping the commandments pleases God. Loving Him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Can an unregenerate do these things? Absolutely not. What else is pleasing to God? What does God both command and will for us to do? Repent and believe. And so, those dominated by the flesh and hostile to God, can unsaved people repent and believe Okay, so here's, here's a doctrine that some of you may not hold to, and that's fine. I believe the Bible teaches that the human will is so enslaved to sin that you can't just, in and of yourselves, believe in Jesus without God doing something to take that that enslaved will away and give you the ability to believe in Jesus. 
In other words, the faith that you even have to believe in Jesus is a gift that God gives you. Because before you were spiritually dead, he had to make you spiritually alive. You could not come to Jesus. The Father had to draw you. You could not come to Jesus. The Father had to grant you. You could not please God. The Father had to make you willing to come to Christ. So just like Mephibosheth was physically handicapped, he had some disabilities, we spiritually, because of sin have a disability or an inability to come to God without grace. Now, where was Mephibosheth living? Lodabar, which means what? Nowhere, which really means he was living in exile and, and an enemy. He was really an enemy of David. He was scared. He was far off. So just like Mephibosheth was an exiled enemy of the king, we too were enemies of God. Now, that Romans passage said that our minds were hostile, but notice what Paul says in Colossians 1, 21 through 22. And you who were once, okay, there's the past tense, you were once, before you were saved, you were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He's now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above him and above reproach before him. What was our condition before God reconciled us to himself? Alienated and hostile. What does it mean to be alienated? Separated. Exiled. Estranged. An enemy of God. We were outside of God's family because of our sin. You hated God. If you think about it, spiritually we were living in Lodabar. We were living in no place, the farthest away from God. We weren't looking for God. We weren't searching for God. We were living as far away from God as we could until God got a hold of us. Okay, so that's guilt. Our spiritual condition before salvation is one of guilt. We're spiritually dead. We're spiritually separated. We're spiritually unable. We're spiritually enemies. We're spiritually exiled. We are not friends with the king. We, are, we were enemies. Okay. Just like Mephibosheth was called in to the king, what did he think was going to happen to him? I'm going to get killed. Okay. What three things did David do for Mephibosheth? They all started with P to help you because I'm a pastor and I have got to alliterate. Okay, protection, provision, and position. He gave, he gave Mephibosheth perfection, I mean protection. Don't fear. You don't have to be in exile anymore. He gave him provision. I'm going to give you your whole inheritance back. And he gave him position. You're going to now sit at my table. Okay, we're moving from guilt to grace. Okay, in grace, in salvation, Jesus is the king. Okay, so how David treated Mephibosheth, how does Jesus treat us in grace? And let's take those three things that David did for Mephibosheth, and let's, let's think about what Jesus has done for us in his grace. So first, Jesus granted us protection. What has Jesus done? When we were weak, when we were afraid, when we were exiled, when we were outside the family, what has Jesus done? He's, he's brought us to himself. 
He's protected us. He saved us. Romans 5, 6 through 11. While we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we've now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, now that we're reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, to whom we've now received reconciliation. We were helpless, we were weak, we were enemies, we deserve God's wrath. And I love verse 8, some of my favorite verses in the Bible. God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God did not expect us to get our act together and say, hey, if you can get your act together, then I'll send Jesus to die for you. If you clean up your act and you do some moral improvements and you try to be a good person, then and maybe then you'll deserve for Jesus to come be your Savior. He says, no, while we were still sinners, we were weak, we were helpless, we were exiled, we were spiritually dead, we could not save ourselves, Jesus came and died on the cross. And so now we don't have to fear punishment, we don't have to fear God's wrath, we don't have to fear hell, we don't have to fear execution on that final day. Because God has brought us into his protection through Jesus' death on the cross. We've been saved, and now we are protected. Just the way that David brought Mephibosheth into the family and said, you're no longer in exile, you are welcome, do not fear. God said the same thing to us, you're no longer in exile, you're no longer spiritually dead, you're no longer spiritually disabled, you come into my family, do not fear, you're saved from my wrath to come forever and ever. You're shielded. So protection is the first thing that Jesus has granted us. Okay, secondly, what did David provide Mephibosheth? Provision. So Jesus has granted us provision. Now, what did David give to Mephibosheth? He gave him the inheritance. He gave all the land, the the estate, everything back to him. Okay, what has King Jesus done for us? Well, he's granted us new life, and he's restored us to fellowship with him, And he's given us an inheritance. So what's our inheritance? Is it a family estate three miles north of Jerusalem in Gibeah? Is it a palatial estate on the Amalfi Coast off of Italy? (laughs) Yeah, that'd be nice. What is the inheritance that Christ has given us? Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. When you got saved, the Holy Spirit came to live inside of you as the guarantee, as the down payment that you're going to get your inheritance. And what's the inheritance? Eternal life in heaven with Jesus. And God means what he says because if he gives you the Holy Spirit as that, as that the down payment, is the Holy Spirit ever going to leave you? No, the Holy Spirit's always going to be there guaranteeing that you get eternal life. We hear about it this way in 1 Peter 1, 3-4. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So because of the resurrection of Christ, because we've been born again, because of all that Jesus has done for us, we have that unfading, unperishable inheritance waiting for us in heaven. Think about how excited Mephibosheth would have been to say, you get your lands back. That's awesome. I don't have to live in Exxon Lodabar. I can move back into the family estate. Think about how much Christ has showered us with riches, saying, one day your inheritance is eternal life in the new heavens and the new earth with me. That's your inheritance, eternal life with me. Okay, third thing. So provision, I mean protection, provision. What's the third thing? Position. What did David do to Mephibosheth? He gave him a seat at the table. He brought him into intimate fellowship and treated him as one of his very own sons. He gives, he gives Mephibosheth a new position. No longer a fear, no longer a slave, no longer an exile, but you get to eat at my table. So what does Jesus offer us from his table of grace? What food do we get to eat from him? So what food does Jesus give us? That's a trick question. He gives us himself. What does Jesus say about himself? John 6, 35. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not eat, or shall not, <laughs> whoever comes to me shall not eat. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. Now, remember here, look at what happens. He says um, in verse 10, you, sh- you and your sons, your servants, shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. You're always going to have bread. The servants, Ziba, the servants of Saul, you guys are going to till the land. You're going to be, you know, wheat and flour. You guys are going to always make sure that Mephibosheth has bread. Jesus says to us, I am the bread of life. I'm going to make sure you always have sustenance. You always have spiritual strength. You'll never hunger, hunger, you'll never thirst, because I've adopted you into my family. I've made you a child. So what... Basically, what David does here is he says to Mephibosheth, you're now my son. You were Saul's grandson. Saul was my enemy. You're Jonathan's son. Jonathan's my best friend. You've been living in exile, but I'm going to make you part of my family. I'm going to adopt you into my family so that you can always eat at my table. And that's what God's done to us. He's adopted us into his family so that we can always eat at his table. 1 John 3, 1. See what kind of love the Father's given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. The Father has shown us love by making us his children. David showed Mephibosheth love by adopting him into the family and giving him access to the table. So let's ask a fundamental question. What? Trina, we just lost the PowerPoint. I don't know what happened. What is grace? What is grace? Well, that's an easy question, Sean. Grace is grace. What is grace? 
Okay, there's a lot of ways to define this, but I want to go to Ephesians 2. Okay, remember Ephesians 2, 1 through 3? I know we looked at that a few moments ago. You were dead. You were enslaved to the world. You were enslaved to Satan. You were enslaved to your flesh. You were a child of wrath. Okay, that was verses 1 through 3. You get to verse 4. Okay, Ephesians 2, 4 through 9. Paul, the apostle, tell us how you would define grace. And here's how he defines grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What is grace? Now, remember in 2 Samuel chapter 9 that we're looking at with your Bible open, what's the key word that shows up three times? Kindness, which is the Hebrew word hesed or steadfast love. I want to show you five, five things about this passage of Scripture that Paul would say, if you want to define grace, here are five things that Paul gives us as far as what grace is from this passage of Scripture. First, Grace is God's immeasurable riches towards those who deserve wrath. Now, why do I say immeasurable? Because the Bible says that. Verse 7, In the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness. Now, let me ask you a question. What's immeasurable mean? Can you measure it? Can you measure God's grace? Yeah, it's 5,280 feet. It's a mile high. It's a thousand yards. It's as deep as the ocean. It's as far as the farthest telescope. Can you, me- can you put a quantity? Can you measure God's love? No. It's immeasurable. Towards those who deserve what? What do we deserve? Some people will say this, and I've had to correct people. They'll say that... Um, God shows grace to undeserving sinners. You're undeserving. And I know what they mean by that. But actually, you do deserve something. You're not undeserving. What do you deserve? Hell deserving, okay? So it's not like we're neutral. Like, yeah, God shows riches of grace to people who don't deserve it. Yes, but it's even worse than that. God shows riches to those that just don't deserve it, but those that do deserve hell. We deserve wrath, but God gives us immeasurable riches. You can't put a quantification, you can't measure it. Okay, what else, how else would you define grace, Apostle Paul? Second, grace is God's sovereign act of making us alive when we were spiritually dead. So, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. Okay, you were spiritually dead. If you're spiritually dead, can you make yourself spiritually alive? No. What does dead mean? Okay, this is going to be a really weird illustration, but some of you may have seen the show Monty Python and the Holy Grail. 
Okay, so there's a scene. This is a weird movie. It's a British movie. Okay, so one of the scenes is it's, it's ancient medieval culture with knights and stuff. And so there's this guy. He's a cart master. He's, he's got a cart, and he's carrying, out, he's carrying a cart of dead bodies. And he's walking through the village. And he says, bring out your dead. Bring out your dead. And so this guy's carrying a dead guy on his back. And the guy on the back says, I'm not dead yet. <laughs> he's like, I don't want to be thrown at the cart. He's like, I'm not dead yet. And the cart master's like, well, he needs to be dead before I can put him in the cart. I'm not dead yet. So he says, bang him over the head. So the other guy just bangs him over the head. He goes, okay, now he's dead. <laughs> now he's dead. He puts him on the back of the cart and he carts him off to go, you know, to be burned or whatever. Um, and then there's some guys on the back of the cart. They're, like, they're being dragged off. I'm not dead yet. Okay, so here's the point. Are you halfway dead? Are you spiritually sick? Or are you fully dead? You're fully dead. If I were to go over to um, Cheney Rager and go downstairs in where they embalm and prepare the bodies, or I go to a morgue and I take a big stick pin and go in there and find the big toe of a dead person and puncture the toe, is there going to be a response? No. You hope not. <laughs> if there is, it's kind of spooky. Okay, why is there no response when you poke a dead person? Because they are dead. You and I are spiritually dead. We cannot come to faith in Christ. We cannot make ourselves alive. We cannot do anything. It's not just that we're sick or that we have, need a little bit of medicine. It's we are spiritually dead. Who has to make us alive? That passage of Scripture says God made us alive. You don't make yourself alive. God has to make you alive. So it's a measurable riches. God being rich in His mercy, the immeasurable riches. Number two, God's, God sovereignly makes you alive when you were dead. Number three, God's grace, or grace is God's power in seating us in the heavenly places as co-heirs with Christ. Look at verse six. He raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now, has that happened yet? Are you seated in the heavenly places with Christ yet? Spiritually, you are. In a spiritual reality, you've been, in God's mind, you're already there in heaven with Him. It just hasn't happened yet. But one day, your place is going to be seated in the coming ages as a co-heir with Jesus, receiving your inheritance. You will be seated with Him in the heavenly places. Seated next to Jesus. Fourth, what is grace, Apostle Paul? Grace cannot be earned or merited, but is solely a free gift of God. You know this one, verse 8. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works. You can't earn grace. You can't work for grace. You can't obligate God to give you grace. In other words, if, if God is obligated to give you grace, it ceases to be grace because grace is something God doesn't have to give. He chooses to give it, and you can't earn it. It's, it's a free gift. And then the last thing, what is grace? Fifth, since God grants us sovereign grace by His power alone, we can never boast that we did something to contribute to our salvation. 
Nobody's going to walk into heaven and say, I got here because I was good, or I got here because I was spiritual, or I got here because I was more attuned to spiritual things. I got here because I, I lived a good life. No, you're going to walk into heaven, and you're going to be so thankful that God saved you because you did not deserve it. Okay? That's grace according to Paul. So in a small way, in a picturesque way, David showers Mephibosheth with this immeasurable kindness in the, in, the, in the physical realm. Gives him his lands back, brings him in for protection, has him seat at the table. Spiritually, so much more to us, God has showered us with grace and he's giving us a place at the table. Now, where's the ultimate table going to take place? Where are we ultimately going to eat at the king's table? At the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. We will one day eat at the king's table forever with Jesus at his table in heaven. Seated next to him in the heavenly places. Always eating at his table as his sons and daughters. So, in our salvation... Jesus has taken us as spiritually dead, handicapped, exiled enemies of God, guilty in our sins, and he's transformed us into God's children. He's protected us from sin, he's provided us heaven, and he's given us a new position of fellowship with God at his table forever. This is grace upon grace. What did we deserve? To be punished for our guilt. What has God shown us? Grace upon grace. The riches of kindness. The way that David showed Mephibosheth kindness. John 1.16, from his fullness we've all received grace upon grace. Kindness upon kindness. Remember the old hymn, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all our sin. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that can pardon and cleanse within. Okay, so guilt... Grace, what's the third category? We looked at this last week. We'll look at it again this week. Guilt, grace, gratitude. Okay. How did Mephibosheth respond to kindness? How did he respond to grace? Well, look at verse 8. He paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for such a dead dog as I? You go back up to verse 6. Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. He bows before the king and says, I'm unworthy to receive this grace. Why me? Why shower me with kindness? So it's the same thing for us. How do we respond? We bow down in worship to King Jesus. We become his servants who are unworthy of his grace, but live a life of joyful gratitude and humble worship. So we live a life of worship because of the grace that's been shown. We don't get the rest of the story with Mephibosheth, but I'm assuming that the rest of Mephibosheth's life, do you think he was a joyful man? Do you think he was content? Do you th he was a blessed, content, joyful man. Do you think that he was ever 
Did you think he ever begrudged? Do you think he, not that he never complained, but do you think he ever, like, he's living a brand new life of joy in the presence of the king for the rest of his life. Because we've been transformed by grace, how do we live the rest of our lives? Do we live it in worship? Romans 12, 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. How do we live a life of gratitude? A life of worship to the Lord. Hebrews 13, 15. Through Him, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Continually a sacrifice of praise. We're servants of the King. Romans 6.22, But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. God has set you free. So Mephibosheth was set free. He was no longer a slave. He was no longer in exile. He was no longer living in fear. He was no longer living in Lodabar. God, or, or, or David, restored him, showered him with kindness, showered him with grace, and then he lived a life of gratitude towards the king. It's the same thing with us. We were enemies. We were lost. We were under God's wrath. We were guilty. By grace, he saved us. He showed us his immeasurable kindness and riches and grace, and then we live a life of gratitude. So in light of his setting us free, you now turn and serve him with a life of humility, worship, and joy. You serve him now as your rightful master and king. And so what we need to think about tonight is, would you truly recognize your guilt that you had before you were saved? God's grace that he showered you with in the immeasurable riches, how he made you alive. And now are you living a life of gratitude to serve the king who set you free the way Mephibosheth lived in gratitude to David who set him free? Joyfully serve this great King Jesus for his grace upon grace. Thus ends 2 Samuel chapter 9. My portion, unless you guys have questions or there's questions online or comments. The marriage supper lamb is a literal table? Well, that's a great question because I, I can't give the full answer because I'd have to ta- teach the whole book of Revelation here in like 30 seconds. But that's in the book of Revelation, which is meant to be taken symbolically. Now, does that mean that there's going to be a literal table big enough for millions upon millions of people to sit with Jesus? Or... Is it a metaphorical or symbolic way of saying we will have unfettered access to Jesus in heaven and the imagery of a table means fellowship and intimacy and joy? It could be, I think it's both. If it is a table, 
It's going to be a huge table. But I do know this. In heaven, there's not going to be the kids' table where the little kids sit. It's not like you're going to be sitting over here and everybody else is going to be enjoying Jesus. You're all going to be around, we're all going to be around Jesus. Um, I, tend to think of the, I tend to think of it as a picture, like a symbolic picture. What does a table represent? What does a marriage supper? A marriage supper means the bride and the groom are finally together, and they've had the wedding ceremony, and, and they get to eat together. It's a joyful experience. Okay. When Jesus comes back, the bride, the church, the groom, we're finally together, and we get to enjoy each other's company forever around a meal. Okay, so that imagery of a bride and groom coming together and eating at the, bri- at the supper, whether that literally happens or whether that's a picture of the fact that we're going to have fellowship with Jesus forever, I think you can take it both ways. I tend to think probably more symbolically, but the, but the meaning is we're going to have, we're going to be at the table. It hasn't happened yet, but all I know is we're going to enjoy it. Think about it this way. Every first Sunday of the month, we, we come to the Lord's table. So in a way, we're anticipating that final meal. We won't take the Lord's Supper in heaven. Why? It's no longer going to be a memorial because we're going to be with Jesus in, in his presence. So every time we take the Lord's Supper, it's a picture of what we wait for in the future of being with him. And so that's why it's called communion. We commune with God. We commune with Christ. We commune with each other right now. Ultimately, it will be unfettered communion. No sin. No anything that would block us from unfettered, unhindered communion with Jesus in perfection. Does that make sense? And that's kind of what the table meant back in that culture was the table meant fellowship, the table meant intimacy, the table meant family. And so for David to bring um, Mephibosheth to the table, it's basically saying, you're my friend, you're my family, you have in- you're part of the inner circle, you're, you have intimacy with me now. And that's kind of what heaven will be like. Does that, does that answer your question, Sean? Yeah. yeah. Or it could literally be a big table we all sit around. I mean, it hasn't happened yet, so... We'll find out when we get there, and we won't be disappointed. Anything else? Well, you guys are a talkative bunch tonight. So, Trina, were there any questions online? Okay. Maybe she can message me later on. Kendra, if you're watching this online, is that Kendra Dunham? Okay, Kendra, if you're watching this, thanks for watching. You can Facebook message me later on with your question, and maybe I can answer it for you. But I'm glad you're watching. Okay. All right, are we good to go? Want to pray? Okay, let's pray. Well, Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture. It's a, it's a wonderful picture of your grace towards us, and we love to see the way David treated a man that was... Um, that in his own eyes, Mephibosheth thought he was undeserving and he was in exile and, and David showed him kindness upon kindness and that's a picture, Jesus, of you as the king, how you treat us. We were spiritually dead, we were separated, we were lost, but you showed us kindness upon kindness and grace upon grace 
And, and because of that immeasurable grace, because you made us alive, we want to fall down on our faces and worship you and serve you and enjoy that future inheritance that you have waiting for us where we'll be forever at your table, enjoying the joy of our salvation with you, Jesus, face to face forever. We await that day. And until then, uh, grant us the grace to live our lives by faith and not by sight. And we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.